0: Can you take political correct images? Ha, yes, you can. Ha. I've, I've had to do it. We can talk about that.
1: This is episode number 25 of the Let's Talk Retouching podcast. Follow along where we talk with industry leaders and professional retouchers about all things post-production and retouching. And this is going to be a special episode as our guest pushed me to initially making this podcast. A warm welcome to the guy straight from Canada, Jerry Kingsley. The show is brought to you by our retouching studio BoutiqueRetouching.com and the website LearnPostProduction.com. Show notes can be found at BoutiqueRetouching.com forward slash Jerry hyphen Kingsley. Before getting into today's episode and and the interview with Jerry I want to remind you that as we started this podcast with Jerry and we have had a different format back then so we started with video since then we made some changes and made it easier for our guests but if you're interested in the how things got started head over to the podcast, the website at retouching.com and check out episode number one, two, and three, which were from the initial interview we did with Jerry. But now let's get into today's episode. So, hey, Jerry, you've not been on the show for quite some time and I'm happy to have you back. So how are you?
0: Uh, I'm great. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be back. It's always nice talking to you.
1: Yes, it is uh, nice catching up. And for the listeners, we have been talking quite a bit before just because we like having the exchange and, and to have a discussion about our ideas and ideals. So yeah, that was super great to catch up with you. And now I want to, want to do something. So for the guys who've been following the podcast, we actually did the first three episodes of the podcast were with you most people don't know that you also were the person who pushed me to making a podcast.
0: That's right. I won't take too much credit for it. I think you probably had that idea uh, in your head a while. I just maybe gave you a little bit of a nudge through the doorway. (laughs) You
1: definitely gave me uh, a little bump here and there. And yeah, since then, since we had our first talk Uh, which was by the way still on video so for those who go back to the first three episodes you might hear the sound was different and stuff and that was actually the case because we started doing it as video and since then I changed the, the concept a little bit and I haven't had you go through the process of being interviewed like I interview every guest when they are on the show for the first time. So that's what we are going to do today. So maybe we start with a little brief introduction again. Maybe you can tell people what is it you are mainly doing now in terms of your business. Maybe let's start there and then we take it from there.
0: Uh, sure. I'm a fan of just the audio, by the way, in the podcast format. So, oh yeah, it's like much it. easier for me to edit that stuff because with video you just
1: you just have to accept what goes wrong, and here we can trick a little bit and talk about things when we think we need it. I often need to repeat it
0: because I call you by the wrong name, but. <laughs> everybody does. Everybody always goes with the Gary instead of the Jerry. I don't know why. Must be the G. But anyways, yeah. So my name is Jerry Kingsley. I'm a Canadian portrait photographer. I run the Studio 98 in Sudbury, Ontario, and I'm also a sessional instructor. So a professor at a university and I work in the film industry doing photography and post-production work. I can say now that I'm a former staff writer at Retouching Academy. I was a writer there for two years due to scheduling issues and just taking on too much work. I had to kind of scale some stuff back. So I decided to table writing for a while although I do miss writing from time to time yeah man but content creation it it sucks up so much time and I
1: really can understand I tell myself I have to get more written content out but then another project comes in and another project and a podcast episode and this and that and then you have life going on you have a family I mean you have I don't I just have a cat but yeah that's how it goes (laughs) 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 <laughs> it's And people just expect to just see something new again and again and again. And sometimes you have just work to be done, right? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's in terms of a brief introduction. I also want to recommend going back to the first episode still because we have talked about so many things just in these three episodes. And that's actually why why I made it three, because we've been talking about too many topics We've been talking about education and retouching and all the stuff. But now for those who do not know you too well, uh, maybe let's go all the way back to how you first got in contact with photography and retouching. How were your first experience with the medium of photography and then maybe retouching?
0: I guess as far back as I can go, I was always like an artist when I was a kid. I would do sketch art and stuff. And then uh, I remember my dad was working for a sales company and part of his job they introduced him they gave him a, a polaroid camera so that when he would build his sales displays he had to take a picture of it and then uh, the camera was always laying around at home And i started playing with that and i uh, i always loved using cameras and messing around with them and taking pictures of random things i would usually like pose my little action figures and toys and all sorts oh, of weird nice. things so you um, actually got to use the camera how old were you back then oh man i must have been like maybe 12 years old i guess and uh, maybe even a little bit younger but yeah i was young enough to have little action figures like gi joe's and Ninja Turtles and uh, dinosaur figures. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, I used to pose everything and take pictures of it and then, uh, you know, draw pictures of all my stuff. So, but fast forward a little bit, I kind of dropped photography and art and chose a a profession where I was more on the technical side of computer technology, fixing and building computers. And I worked for uh, as a subcontractor for IBM for a number of years. And then during the 2008 financial crisis, the company that I was working for went out of business. Uh, To make a long story short, I was doing photography as a hobby. And then I just kind of progressed and and got better and better until I was to the point where I said, okay, I got to I think about opening a business and I did and everything kept progressing in a positive way and then all of a sudden getting enough jobs to sustain myself full time and now uh, I'm running a, a commercial studio in North Ontario working in the film industry and I also teach photography at the uh, university here as well and then for a time like I said mentioned earlier, really, I was I was a staff writer for yeah. retouching Academy and I assume you first started taking images when they were still analog
1: so have you experienced your processing back then uh did you send it all to the lab or have you done the processing yourself and
0: uh yeah unfortunately i I didn't really get to learn how to do darkroom work on my own when i was shooting film i was either shooting instant so like polaroid stuff or i was sending it out to a place to get developed for me Uh, and then uh, i ended up just making the jump and i was an early adopter of digital right away so I kind of leapfrogged a lot of the analog processing. Uh, mind you, I'm actually, I just bought a whole bunch of rolls of film because I actually built myself a darkroom in my new studio. and. Oh, nice. That's super great.
1: I mean, so I consider myself still someone who is a kid basically of the digital age. My first own camera was digital, but I went back to also shooting analog because I I kind of like the idea of just having 10 images that I can shoot on a roll and then putting it all together and processing it myself. And also, like, it's great to see people in our fast paced world to go back to slow down and being more focused on the idea and what they actually want to get out of it in terms of just snapping away images.
0: Yeah, it kind of forces me to become a better photographer. You know what I mean? Like, I don't have to just automatically keep looking at the back of the camera. It makes me really rely on the skills that I have. Plus, what's got me more interested today is uh, with my new Nikon D850, you can get the uh, scanner, which I was uh, contemplating playing with. So um, if I can do that, then I can basically just take my negative strips, convert them to a positive in a, an emulsion bath and then start scanning them directly into the D850. And the sensor is the exact same size as a 35 millimeter roll of film. So I can actually uh, get a 47.8 megapixel raw yeah. oh, nice. uh, picture of a of a 35 millimeter analog yeah. still, which is pretty, pretty crazy. Yeah, yeah. 35 millimeter usually I get from the medium format on
1: my uh, regular. So it's not a super high resolution scanner. It's just the regular scanners. So you get like a, 25 to 28 ish megapixel fire uh which is great but for 35 that usually is like not that great resolution but if you get like 40 megapixels out of that that's that's comparable to uh, uh, a drum scan basically
0: yeah yeah exactly so yeah so I'm excited to start doing that and uh, setting that up and seeing where that goes I figured once I get good enough doing that then I'm gonna I've been contemplating picking up a house supply at a 500 cm oh nice yeah so
1: Or, or a six by seven Yeah, that could be one.
0: Yeah, that too. I really like the Hasselblad uh, 500 CMs from what I've seen with like the Porto 120s or probably even just black and white, I guess I would probably get.
1: Black and white is a little bit easier to just throw things in and not really care of how precise you are you're processing it. So I like that sometimes. But talking about the post-production side uh, as like how then when you you started taking digital images uh, was post-production and retouching always a part of it or did it just slowly happen to you to just get into that topic
0: uh well it didn't really happen right away so when i started uh, just experimenting with pictures obviously i was doing like basic editing but i wasn't really retouching in terms of the uh, the proper sense of the word like i wasn't going into like high-end skin retouching i didn't really know much about dodging and burning at the time i was basically doing what anybody else would do yeah moving sliders back and forth adding contrast and yeah, exactly. Filters and whatnot. And uh, it wasn't until I was actually, um, I started trying to do more digital art than actually photography originally. I was actually taking pictures of star trails and trying to like superimpose and do photo manipulations because uh, uh, I'd was i spent a lot of time on the website DeviantArt yeah. uh, and i spent more time on DeviantArt than I would on the more of the traditional photography sites like Flickr. And eventually I got into Flickr and I started doing more photography and retouching like that. But how was it then that you first got in contact with the post-production side? It's like, how
1: was that experience like back then? And was it natural that it... Is more like a technical process to you that you understood from your technical background in it and stuff or was it more that you saw things like in magazines that you just couldn't achieve just with your camera
0: yeah so i guess you know most of my friends at the time that were shooting amateur they were using stuff like like lightroom or gimp uh, and they were just moving the sliders back and forth like i was saying when i did start using Flickr more I think it might've been Julia from retouching Academy, who was the first one that I actually was uh, inspired to get into retouching. This is when this is, was way back, probably in like 2007. So yeah, probably 11, maybe even 12 years ago. Now when I first saw her work and other people like hers and I would see their portraits and how the skin looked, how everything looked in terms of the post-production, I just couldn't understand how they achieved those type of looks. So I started following a bunch of different higher end photographers. I know a lot of them came out of, for some reason they came out of Russia. I don't know why that was, but uh, it seems like there's lots of retouchers in Russia for some reason, I'm not sure why, but I I know that Julia was one, Julia Kuzmenko was one that stood out to me. And uh, I remember in 2008, this was way before Retouching Academy, and she started doing online workshops through Skype. So I, I bought into one, I think it was like a couple hundred bucks. And that was probably the main thing that pushed me into uh, into retouching and doing post-production at a, at a high end or more pro- professional level. Yeah, for someone
1: who has never experienced that, how was that seeing someone go through these retouching techniques? Was it like super eye-opening or was it like, oh, okay,
0: I can do that? uh probably a little bit of both because i remember i had never heard of dodging and burning and i didn't really know much about post-production in the analog days and dodging and burning nobody knows actually comes from film as well where they used to use chalk and and actually like physically like airbrush and paint in on the the negatives yeah and also on the in the they used their
1: hands or created masks for the light to to hit through or being blocked
0: yeah exactly right so a little bit was kind of like an epiphany moment we meaning was like wow this is this is i can't believe you know we're able to do stuff like this in photoshop and then the other part of me was like oh yeah this makes total sense right but uh, once it was actually laid out and shown to me um i was like "Ah, that's cool and uh, i progressed further and just started practicing and practicing and over over a number of years yeah which can be frustrating i guess we
1: all had times when we just practice and and we see uh, we are learning new skills and then you 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 basically lose yourself in the process of doing that
0: yeah like what happened to me was I would go back and retouching portraits and I would sit there for hours and hours just kind of zoned in listening to music with headphones on and just you know dodging and burning away playing around frequency separation and texture graphing and anything that I can I can use to make my images better so yeah that's just our reference now how you got into that
1: and now that maybe we get into a little bit of the workflow of how you approach the things. Maybe let's talk about that. When you get your images back, which are digitally, how do you start? They have to go somewhere usually. When you take them from your card, how 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 does that process look in terms of how you managing your files, your backup solution, and maybe all that stuff?
0: Uh, so my workflow has uh, has evolved over time, but the way I've been I've been working it today is that. I tried shooting Tether and to be honest, I wasn't, I'm not a fan of shooting Tether. So I shoot straight to memory cards and I have it automatically back up to a secondary card slot. Uh, And what I do is as soon as I'm done the shoot, I pop it in my computer. I make a backup on my, uh, I have uh, one of those Lacey, um, tough drives or the, the ones with the orange rubber around them so i back it up there and then i do a, another backup uh, i have a nas so an, a network attached storage system with about uh, 20 terabytes and i do a, a, another physical backup of just a ros there and then i use a lacy drive and that's the drive that i'm working from and then after I'm, I'm done the shoot all the psds i back up to to the server as well yeah so that's my backup solution i think that went a little bit fast for most people who are not that super technical so Okay. So
1: you shoot with a camera that has two card slots and have them backed up basically internally so you have every image twice and then you have on the go usually a USB or Thunderbolt drive with you that you can back up the files and then later on in the studio you have a a file server running that you can push your projects on and stuff. So that's base setup, right?
0: Yeah, and that's and that's my workflow in terms of how I actually take the images, store them, save them, and then the working ones I'll keep on my USB drive. And then once I'm finished processing those ones, I'll, uh, I'll uh, put all the uh, finished files that I want to save onto the server as well. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I think a lot of people, they skip
1: backups because they... I don't know, think uh, nothing will ever happen to their flies because they were not confronted with the situation before. So they assume it's like, oh, it's going to be fine forever. And I think we both can stress that when things happen, they just happen. And most of the time in the worst time you can imagine for them to happen.
0: Yeah. You know, I had, I would hear cards failing and stuff like that, and I would never, I would always think, ah, it's somebody else. It always happens to somebody else until it happens to you. You don't want to be at that point where a drive fails or your card fails and you have a big a big project on the go, and that's not the time where you want to start looking. "Hmm, Maybe I should add a backup server.
1: Yeah, you should. And even even working in IT, you're not safe from the thought of nothing will happen to you. I mean, there's no one else to blame but yourself when things go wrong. It's not the card, it's not uh, technology, it's usually you not taking care of your files properly. That's right, yeah. Now, that we are usually focused mostly uh, on the post-production side here. um, Maybe you can describe when you get started with the retouching, you have to start by using stuff so how does your workstation look like maybe we can get into all the stuff that you're using and then how you go on with working on them
0: uh my setup's pretty simple uh probably not unlike anybody else's uh i have my my retouching rig just it's an alienware laptop that's getting a little bit older i'm probably gonna be replacing it sometime soon and i have a a nice dell professional 27 inch monitor and i have a a wacom intuos uh, that i do all my uh all my retouching on Uh, so that's in terms of like my hardware setup just curious which size of the wacom tablets are you using the smallest one okay I have, I, I, I had the medium one and I find the smallest one just works better because I can cover a larger portion of the well, screen in yeah. a shorter distance on the smaller one. Right. But at first I figured the bigger one would be a, a more accurate presentation of the screen, but I find it's, it's not as, as good to work on because I find my brush strokes are just too long and it's too awkward. So I find the smaller one is just, it just you have to lift your arm all the time and yeah. yeah so but but it's the good thing is like I just
1: yesterday had another interview and for that person it's completely the opposite way around so if it's getting too small they feel like they cannot be precise enough when they make press strokes but it's a good thing to be different in that and to experience that so it's really hard for someone to recommend oh, you have to go with a small one or you have to go with a medium because we have super different tendencies with how we want to work with that.
0: Yeah, really, everybody's going to have their own style. So I see so many people on Facebook groups where they're saying, which one should I buy? And everybody's going to have this or that. Really, until you try them, there's not really any way to know. Like at first, I went with the larger one because I, f- I figured that would be the best, the best one to go yeah. with just by logic of bigger is better. And it takes a little
1: bit time to adjust for it anyway. So consider... If you never used one of the tablets and pens, it's similar to... Uh, me thinking back when computers were around and using a mouse was normal to me and when I put my grandma in front of the computer she was like oh I don't know what's happening now and it's all crazy stuff happening and that's what happens to many people when they first use a Wacom tablet and you just have to get used to it and then you can make a decision if it's too small or too big.
0: That's right that's why when I started I don't recommend anybody start by buying the expensive Intuos line first the professional line I started just buying the bamboo which is way cheaper i would also recommend like when there are trade shows and wacom is
1: attending they put up a a display of different devices and you can just go and try them out and they're not saying like oh you're limited to like five minutes and then you have to go away so you just can go out and and try them and see what's really happening i mean it's not like the same like having it in your studio and working with it for like two weeks, right? But to be honest, if you never used a, a tablet, you you will always find yourself going back to your old routines for a while until you you make the jump finally.
0: Uh, yeah, it's, it's one of the most common things that I kept hearing about. Like I even know um, when I first bought my bamboo tablet quite a number of years ago now, I took it out, tried it. I was like, what the heck's going on here? Didn't understand it. And I put it back in the box for about a week. And then uh, I said, uh, okay, I'm going to force myself to uh, learn how to use it and learn how to use it well. And I just plugged it in. I just forced myself to use it for about three straight days. And then I was like, and then I couldn't go back to the mouse afterwards. I have the same experience now. So I have a big
1: trackball that I, I replaced my mouse with when I'm not using with the tablet. And every time I now touch the mouse, it feels awkward. And just considering now doing retouching
0: with the mouse, it's just not possible. It's, it's so unnatural. Yeah, well, you can't get as precise movements. And uh, really what it comes down to is just hand-eye coordination and muscle memory, right? We're so used to doing things with a mouse for years. Before that, we were used to those in-keyboard trackballs. So anytime they introduce a new technology that you never used before, it takes your body yeah. and your hand-eye, your you know, your brain to adjust the hand-eye coordination. Yeah, true. And every time you
1: make a change, it also takes time to adjust for that. So even if you're switching to your keyboard shortcuts, it takes a certain amount of time to learn them all again. Or if you, you're you mapping down your area of your Wacom tablet, it, it feels weird for a day or two until you get used to that. So yeah, I just can recommend taking your time with that and not overstressing you because your brain, um, it just can process a certain amount of change over a period of a day or two and then your brain processes it overnight and next day things just work
0: better. Well, it's like anything, right? Any skill, it's a, as long as you're you're dedicated and you practice it, you will get better. It's like if you don't know how to sketch, well, you start drawing a person. You'll start with a stick man. You'll start with a or a stick. Well, I'm still at the stick man stage. Yeah. So uh, yeah, exactly. I'm probably there too. But uh, but if you did it every single day and you took you know 20 minutes a day yeah. and tried to refine it, refine it, it over a few days a week a year you're gonna get better and better so it's the same yeah and then then
1: you look at my dodging and burning uh, masks and still consider i can paint some decent stigma images but my mask looks great right <laughs> yeah that's
0: exactly right yeah <laughs> yeah so uh but yeah so uh but i like the intuos tablets actually right now i'm currently because i'm i'm in the process of of upgrading my 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 whole system i've been doing a lot of research on um if i wanted to go completely computerless so what i mean by that is something like an ipad pro yeah. or a, or an into or a cintiq type but of in, setup interesting enough like uh, didn't
1: adobe announce to uh, launch a photoshop full version of
0: for the ipad pro ne- uh, somewhere next year that's right. Yeah. I, yeah. Wrote, I actually wrote an article on it a couple months ago. Yeah. I see. So that's the thing, right? I've been kind of struggling. It's like, do I want to push forward? Do I want to wait till the technology is a little bit more adopted with the, with the community and the industry? Or do I want to be the early adopter? I've always seemed to have been on the path of being the early adopter in most new technologies. But the other thing too, is just uh, the convenience of having something like a tablet that's just available to me. The only thing that my biggest stick is is that is it really powerful and how practical is it going to be uh, in terms of actually having it on your lap or something versus yeah. at a at a station at a desk so i don't know yeah that's but, a thing interestingly enough
1: some of them um, probably not the ipad but the other ones they often come with the thunderbolt free which you can yeah put a docking station on it and have an, a monitor connected to it it's an interesting concept of to have like a little device that you can take with you and also could be your main workstation and you can nowadays plug in additional graphics cards maybe even uh, processors additional processors I think that's possible uh, or might be possible just in the near future
0: well i just saw a recent uh, i think it was an ad or an article that intel's new they have a basically a usb it looks like a usb stick almost like an amazon fire stick you plug it inside, and it's going to be like this machine learning ai kind of like just augmented it just makes your computer faster so i think we're going to have like us like you said usb attachments that are just going to augment different different stuff like processing power and whatnot yeah, so that's kind of where I'm at in terms of actual hardware. But I, my setup's fine now. I mean, it's 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 a good working setup. My I think I think I have the uh, not nothing the newest Intuos, but the one that was like the Intuos version three. So it's like a couple years old now, but it's a. Uh, it's reliable it works and never really have any issues with it They're known known to be scratched like crazy but they never break yeah, exactly yeah I, I agree like apart from the nibs but i mean but oh, yeah. you know what i i know some people that go through nibs like crazy i have never had to replace a nib i don't know why i'm just very light yeah that's with an my
1: interesting thumb. concept and there were also people uh, complaining about the newer nibs which were off faster to not scratch the surface as much and they are complaining about that now so I'm not sure. I'd rather have my surface a little bit more intact and replace the the dnips more often. Some people might not even need it, right?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: It's time for a little commercial break again. The show is brought to you by BoutiqueRetouching.com and also LearnPostProduction.com. You can listen to the podcast on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, whichever podcasting app you favor. But you can also listen on our website retouching.com forward slash podcast and you will find all the show description there. You will find additional blog posts. And speaking about blog posts, we will be putting out some new content Specifically, I want to mention we are going to put out a script of help layers. Help layers specifically targeted to beauty retouchers and beauty retouching. And I'm announcing this now. And yeah, just if you're listening to this podcast, it's going to come out soon. Maybe check out the website when this will be out and yeah we were putting it in the store for just a few bucks to cover our expenses on the server side yeah so that's been our commercial back to the conversation with jerry kingsley
0: apart from the wacom tablet
1: how is it about monitor monitor calibration and stuff like this
0: uh yeah so for my monitor i'm using the the dell ips panels it's a little bit older now but uh, it's 27 inch professional panel i think it can do srgb only but i i I tend to yeah so i I keep it in srgb just because that's uh it's either that or it doesn't do full adobe rgb 1998 but uh i calibrate it just with an older spider 3 yeah Uh, i know it's a lot of people kind of push the uh x right um color monkey stuff but my spider 3 is older but it's been working fine i haven't really had any issues in terms of caliber like i calibrated probably once a month to once every three yeah. months.
1: Well, yeah, usually they the displays do not change like every week. That It's not like your colors are thrown off just by turning your monitor on for a few weeks. Not that super crazy or not that super critically. But other than that, for people who are using the, the especially an older version of the uh, Spider Calibrators, there's a, a freeware called uh display car or display calibration which you can use they have their own drivers for the devices and you can even unlock some features that the original software doesn't allow you to use with the same device so just a hint well, that's
0: pretty cool you have sent me a link to that That'd be good to look into yeah i use
1: it all the time i also have an older Dell monitor i'm not even using a led technology as long as it's running right you you can use them but yeah, Dell so, uh, monitor, what else, Wacom tablets we talked about, then your calibration device. When you're calibrating for SAGB, usually that's the color space you
0: are exporting your images in anyways. Yeah, so that's right. It's, so it's kind of a, it's kind of weird because um, when I set up uh, my monitor, uh, I basically just, SRB is, is the highest color gamut that I can put it in, so I calibrate for that. But I always shoot in Adobe RGB and then I edit in Adobe RGB. And that I export to sRGB but I, I, I get good results anyways I find it's pretty consistent so I have a, I actually have a Canon professional printer right beside my setup so I can do hard proofing right in the studio so I can see like to make sure that yeah that's good to have to, uh, to have that and they are white
1: gamut printers so you actually can yeah. make, take advantage of much more colors than when it were to go into uh, pre-press which is a CMYK color space, which is much, much smaller than even sRGBs. So on the uh, Canon printer you have, you can, for the most part, take advantage of the full Adobe RGB color space, sometimes in some parts even larger than the Adobe color space. And that's super nice to, yeah, to
0: even make prints and fine art prints, uh, depending on how large it is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, so by having that ability there, I can kind of see right right away whether or not I'm, I'm hitting my colors or not yeah that's so true and i found that many people
1: when they're doing post-production that they think the monitor is always right and i think it's a good practice to also print stuff out because um, you have to think of a monitor as an output device the same way as a printer is so you calibrate to get them to the same level usually but it doesn't mean it's always perfect so nothing could potentially go wrong just because you calibrated it. and it's a good practice to to actually yeah do that stuff as well and have a print made
0: yes yeah, it still pretty surprises me how many people use really low-end monitors just like the generic store-bought stuff and then they're not calibrated they're not nothing and and they and they're surprised when their work is inconsistent you know it looks one way on my phone it looks another way on my screen it looks a completely different way in in the printer and they're like i don't know yeah i don't know why it's like well you're not calibrating it that's true some people
1: might even get around it for once they might not even see the differences because they are not experienced enough when they're at that stage and other people they just learn their setup so they're always working at the same setup and they just learn how things look and what works for them and what doesn't and as long as you do not change that they are fine with it you just cannot use another computer for your work and stuff so it's interesting how our brain adapts for that and how we learn how things behave
0: even though it might be uh, visually or measurably uh, wrong yeah the, the, the other that it's like it that works fine until something breaks You know, when you're relying on this one, like, turnkey system, it's like, I have to use this computer, this monitor, and this setup, but it's like, if that one day you go into the office and all of a sudden, uh, oh, crap, my monitor died, I have to use something else, it really, then you're starting, you're almost starting from scratch, versus if you were if you are used to working on cross-platform and on you know a laptop here as workstation there you're going to be much more well adapted to kind of go in anywhere and work on any systems calibrate it and understand yeah. what's happening and then be able to produce the same consistent work and workflow that you can your your main setup you also start out
1: when you're working on series this year you start working differently so you you always have images up to compare them to and uh, look more maybe on the histogram to match the contrast and
0: do not only rely on your gut feeling and your eyes that's right like one thing that i do beyond that as well uh just it just became a a, a habit after i would post an image um, especially with like instagram let's say or even before i get to instagram i'll have a i have like a fake facebook page and then uh, if i'm curious to see how my images look across platform i'll upload it to that page i'll look at it on my macbook air then i'll look at it on my pc then i'll look at it on my phone then i'll look at it on my wife's phone if i'm curious if i have color consistency and we have so you got you know an android and iphone a mac air and a alienware pc and if it all looks relatively the same then i know that i i uh, got my calibration down yeah definitely i mean there are so many people
1: just wondering oh i just uploaded the image and all of a sudden it looks so weird because they were really, maybe even accidentally exporting the wrong color profile and it gets thrown away and then all of a sudden it gets interpreted as something else and it just looks weird right
0: right yeah Well, that's the problem is that we have, like there's no, most, most photographers and retouchers are entering uh, an industry with no formal education, you know, so they're, so they'll, they'll usually get into it because it becomes a hobby or an interest and then they'll start progressing and progressing to the point they think they're good enough to start getting paid and they'll just start taking jobs, but they've never been formally trained in terms of what is color calibration, you know, what is pre-press, you know, what what, you don't even understand how press a system's work. You know, if you're going to shoot for a magazine or if you're going to prepare documents for a magazine. So what ends up happening is uh, they get into it, kind of bite off a little bit more so they can chew and then they're stuck kind of working backwards to try to learn this after the fact, which could be potentially problematic uh, if you're Let's say getting a job with a big publication for the first time and you're like oh crap i'd never i was never taught this or knew anything about this yeah so there's a really big inconsistency in education across uh, across our industry like no uh, no other industry i find yeah that might be true i don't even know the reason why that is the case maybe because
1: like in the agency world they usually have graphic designers and they expect basically everything from them. So they have a formal education that is super broad and not really detailed because they cannot cover everything and just formal education over like three years or something. And then you have some people who out of their own interest dig deeper and others don't. And yeah, so it's, it's really hard. And as you said, it's like really I don't know a formal education that covers all that stuff. Like even retouching, there is no formal education. I think we talked about it already in in early episodes, but it it, it still through the state there is no guideline of what you should be able to do and what you should
0: learn yeah that's right so even at, at the college that i used to work at uh the, when i taught photography i taught in the uh, it was always a part of the graphic design program but they're never taught any type of retouching in the sense of like skin retouching dodging and burning nothing like that they're basically taught how to use sliders and that's about it they'll they'll learn how to do selections and cut stuff out and that pretty much anything a graphic designer should know how to do but in terms of actual like photo retouching not at all it's like oh here's a healing brush the site take out pimples and that's about it they don't spend any time on it at all which is unfortunate but then again do we want a bunch of graphic designers calling themselves retouchers i don't know what's better uh, it's a difficult topic i think at some
1: point we're going to get there and it's I like to compare it to the audio world. They have a certain amount of education going on there, but there's no school or education you can take to become a mastering engineer or stuff. It's just like mastering gets taught like a super small part of the process of recording, engineering, and to be really good with just mastering, you have to work your ass off and focus on just learning that stuff usually on your own. It's the same with retouching, I would say.
0: Yeah, I think I think the people that get to the highest ends are the ones that did all the hard work, work that learned as much as they could and continue to learn. Yeah, it's, it's funny because I find like even with my retouching, when you first learn it, everything is so heavy handed because it's this new fascinating toy that you have in your toolbox and you want to use it for everything. And then uh, over time, I found that I've I've uh, refined how much and how little I did to a point where I try to be as as invisible as possible but I see other people do the total opposite where it's just so heavy handed to the point where it just looks absolutely ridiculous and you can tell they just don't know what they're doing. But considering like just
1: looking in the field of beauty retouching, like 10, 20 years ago, that was super crazy, super overdone. And you can just by looking at the images say, okay, that's retouched. And you can say basically what has been done. And now that we have all the super high resolution images, I think we are slowly getting to a point where people get to appreciate retouching work that even retouchers cannot point out. Maybe that something has been done, but not what and where has something has been done.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. Like I've been I always tell people, you know, you've done a good job if nobody knows what you did. I'll just I'll just say it like that. Every time I I, I have new students, that's what I tell them. I said, if nobody knows what you did, that's that's how you you, you know you did a good job, right? Uh, Your work has to be invisible. If it's not, then it's artificial and it's fake. So like the biggest problem I see is is like eyes. Oh, my God. Yeah. Alien eyeballs on so oh, yeah. many people. They just brighten up the eyes to the point where it's inhuman. It makes no sense with the the physics of how the light hit the face. Yeah. Even if you had the brightest,
1: bluest eyes in the world, it's like... <laughs> just <laughs> considering now a black and white image like some of them they have like this super bright iris and then it is
0: super dark black ring around it and no texture in between basically yeah and it looks ridiculous and i kind of wonder them it's like are they not looking at their work are they not comparing it to the actual reality like yeah it has to match the overall lighting on the person That's yeah that's exactly it i also
1: like to ask the questions like you said are they not looking at their work it's like i would say are they not
0: looking at actually humans how they look yeah that's a good way of putting it too because there's a physics to photography right so so you have to work within the within the physical reality of if my light source is coming in from screen right to left, and it's a key light, and it's illuminating this side of the face at this much power, if I brighten it too much to the point where my irises are brighter than, let's say, the uh, the forehead or the tip of the nose or wherever else the, the light source is at its most intense, yeah. well, it, it can't be brighter than that because it wouldn't make any logical sense. So anybody who understands... well anybody looking at it will be like well this this is obviously photoshopped. And to me like when people say yeah. this is obviously photoshopped is that is saying that I'm I did a bad job. Oh yeah, I just recently had a discussion with a model. So sometimes
1: I take images and we were taking close-ups and she played around with the idea of putting colored contacts in her eyes. And I was saying, "No, nope, that's not going to happen. That's going to look so artificial." I mean, When you look at people in real life, it's like you will not notice that because you're not paying attention on how light reflects or reflects off of a face, but on an image you do. And when you have something covering your eye that doesn't
0: reflect, it completely looks off all of a sudden. Yeah, exactly. So that's that's my one of my biggest gripes is when people don't take those things in consideration. And I think that's not one of those lines that that separates uh, an amateur to a professional as well. Yeah, that's true. Now let's get a little bit back to your process. We covered all the hardware and stuff, and
1: now let's maybe, how do you start by processing the images? Let's maybe just quickly go through that, just to give a rough idea and have a comparison to other people.
0: Sure, so I think from what I understand and from what I've seen out there, I do my stuff a little bit different in terms of the software that I, I that I use. So I don't use Capture One, and I don't use Lightroom, number number one. I do everything almost exclusively in bridge yeah a camera camera and directly in photoshop and i have to just jump in here and say
1: what many people have not talked about is just with the recent updates of photoshop and lightroom also bridge got an update that's right yeah so far i kind of dig what they did to the interface and it just appears to be much more snappy
0: in terms of the response than it used to be oh big time big time and I, I love that process. Some people swear by Capture One and they swear by Lightroom. I guess maybe it's I'm coming from a, more of an old school uh, mentality, but I like bridge because uh, I'm, I'm not a fan of their catalog systems of phase one and lightroom i'm the same so uh,
1: lightroom usually is not my case because i don't want to use the the library stuff capture one usually is in terms of just because of the image quality and for everything else i also use bridge because it i don't have to import anything the uh, image previews get processed basically on the fly as you access the files and you just yep. run and go with what you have
0: yeah exactly like i st- I, I was using capture one for a while and i and i liked it and everything i liked the the interface it was a little bit weird to get used to at first but the imports were killing me i had some imports with the d850 when i had like two cards to import it was taking upwards of two hours and i looked online and i tried troubleshooting guides and it was just taking forever i know for a bridge you can set up how how big your
1: preview files are generated and they're also stored differently so for capture one i think they are going to be put in the same file structure where your project lives. And Adobe is a little bit clever, especially on Windows, they're putting it all in a, in a certain folder on your C drive, uh, which usually is an SSD drive. And that is maybe uh, what makes it now a little bit faster. I'm just guessing.
0: Yeah, I'm not 100% sure of, of how they did, but I've noticed that uh, with the most recent update, it was was a lot faster. But even before that, I found that I was able to work faster through Bridge as my starting place than I could through Lightroom or Capture One. So usually what, what'll what happen is after my images are uploaded to my working drive, um, so I have a working SSD that I work from, I'll organize all my files by date and then the project name, and then I'll just have one folder with all the raws. And then I'll go through it with Bridge, and I'll start rating all my selections. So I'll use a one-star, one to five-star rating, and everything that I like, I do one star, and anything I like better, I start incrementing the stars, and I filter it uh, using the uh, the Bridge, which works the same if you do it in Lightroom or or Capture One a little. I think that's something most people do not talk about is
1: a bridge and what you actually can do with it. it? They always talk about Lightroom and that you can write your images and select the images and all that stuff. And to be honest, if you do not need the functions of a library in terms of cataloging the images in terms of uh, keywords and all that stuff, and even that, to a certain degree you can do in Bridge without creating this library file that is not accessible by any other
0: software yeah exactly so bridge has almost every single feature that lightroom has just uh organized more as like a file explorer so you can do all the same stuff i just find it's way easier and way more simpler and faster to use than lightroom or capture one so i've stuck with that i don't get a different really quality in my uh in my work so for me that's the easiest way to to run it and not only that i find bridge will work on pretty much any computer so, I, so, if I don't want to do editing on my MacBook Air, I can still bring my hard drive, open Bridge, and start doing the selections or doing some work. Whereas, if I tried to use a Lightroom or Capture One on an older system, I would have to install it. That if you import it. It was slow and clunky. I don't know. It's just would have been my preference, and it's worked for me ever since. So.
1: Yeah, and then you process your images through the um, Adobe Camera Raw dialog, or you, you can also sync your your settings uh, throughout files uh, with the dialog or in Bridge itself, and then you probably go to Photoshop, I would say.
0: That's right, so what I'll what I'll essentially do is, uh, after I make all my, my, my basic selections, uh, for instance, like for as an example, I just did a whole bulk of photos for when I was uh, doing the celebrity portraits at the Toronto International Film Festival earlier, about a month or two ago. So I have one consistent look. So what I'll do is I'll start with one base layer, because my lighting's the same across, I'll make all my selections, I'll open up one of the images, do some minor raw, con- raw uh, conversion, uh, some raw work in Adobe Camera raw, and then from that, I can just easily copy and paste it to all the other files that i want to process and that i find works way faster in uh, capture one so after that then i bring it into photoshop and i do all the rest of my retouching yeah
1: and i think for the main retouching workflow is basically set up i'm not sure if we talked about it but i don't want to stress it now too much we usually go through a bunch of healing and cloning and color corrections and all that stuff and it's not something we focus too much in, in the podcast then, but I want to get to a topic it's like you are running a studio but also doing a lot of post production so how is it to be in front to be stuck in front of the computer which might not happen all the time but it will happen uh, throughout working on certain projects for long hours of time so how is it to be stuck on there have you tried co-working spaces or what are you doing to stay connected with family while working and being outside or being in front of the computer so how is it for you
0: um yeah so essentially what i've done is i've organized myself to work between the hours of like 9 to around four o'clock during the day and started to get into retouching. And uh, he asked me a bunch of questions about uh, looking at his website and stuff and wanted some critique and some tips. And I noticed that with his site, the first thing I noticed is that he had like 10 different genres of photography that he was working on. He had architecture, he had beauty, he had fashion, he had portraits and headshots. And it's just, so the first thing I said, it's like, okay, figure out what you want to market to. And then practice and perfect that one market because, you know, there's a reason why they say a jack of all trades is a master of none. If you want to be a jack of all trades, that's fine. But it's hard to be exceptional if you're if you're working on too many different different genres. So always figure out what you enjoy doing most, perfect that, and then market to that. Yeah. You can still take on the other work, but like what I'll tell them, it's like we'll have a separate site or a separate gallery or a separate link for that work to at least create a, some separation. Because if you just throw do everything at once. Yeah, and there's also nothing wrong with uh, when you
1: established yourself already as something to expand on that later on. That's much easier than to start the other way around and trying to do everything. And nobody is paying you the the money you expect to make and you will be stuck that price range maybe or uh, income range for way too long. The other way usually works a little bit better. So that was super great advice.
0: But you have to try different things to figure out what you enjoy doing and when you figure out what you enjoy doing. I would say just stick to that. A lot of people, they get into this uh, routine where they'll just keep taking random work and they start kind of losing practice in what they truly enjoy doing, because they think if I don't take all this other work, I'm not going to get work doing what I enjoy. But my philosophy around that is if you keep doing what you're good at, and if you keep pursuing the thing that you love the most, the money will come later get the best that you can at what you enjoy doing. And eventually people re- will recognize you for it, but you got to keep marketing to it. Do that other stuff behind the scenes, make your money, make your bread and butter, but only advertise to the market that you want to play in. So if somebody's starting out and they want to be a beauty retoucher, let's say only market to beauty retouchers, take on other jobs as you're learning and growing, but market to that, perfect that, get better at that, go on the Facebook groups, watch what people are doing, watch others, see what's working, find people that inspire you and emulate them and then find your own style. But yeah, that's kind of the, the basic thing, right? Just be very observant and be conscious about about your skill set, and don't oversell yourself. If you're not there, you're not there. Don't try to take on jobs where you're clearly under uh, under skilled for. I see a lot of people that just kind of fake it till you make it <laughs> ideology, but especially in a world where uh, consider you're not
1: working in uh, for just a photographer and you're working on maybe get lucky and get a shot at an editorial or maybe an advertising job. Um, that can get pretty expensive if you're not able to do that. And you, yeah, you you for once uh, ruin your reputation. Exactly. And for the other one is if you're not making the deadlines and not being able to fulfill the contract, that can get a little bit expensive as well.
0: Well, exactly. I know people that try to start businesses in photography and in retouching, and uh, they were able to sell themselves and got these massive projects that they were not experienced for, not qualified for, but they somehow got them. And as you can imagine, uh, it didn't go so well, and it pretty much destroyed their businesses and their reputation, right? So it's important to progress in a reasonable way that you're not going too fast, but you're not going too slow. Yeah, and always
1: stick with what you really love. That was the main takeaway of what you were saying before. That's
0: right, yeah, exactly. If you hate what you're doing, you're never going to be good at it, oh, right? Oh,
1: yeah, It's you're not going to make it over like two years or something. Definitely not.
0: Yeah, exactly. As
1: you said it before, I couldn't have said it any better, to be honest. Great advice. And also, I want to thank you for sticking around. Um, we've been talking quite a while now, and I think we will continue having discussions on interesting topics somewhere in the future and yeah I have to thank you for again sticking around and talking so openly about all these topics yeah thanks for that my pleasure okay talk to you soon bye so that was a great ending to podcast however episode number 25 is a wrap sometimes things just end because we have to do other stuff and we've been talking for so long if you like the episode, subscribe to the
0: podcast, and I talk to you in the next episode. You said, you said Gary instead of Jerry. Yeah,
1: I messed it up. Happened last time, happens this time. <laughs> Damn, I'm confused. It's too late over here. <sighs> Maybe we should, we should already cancel. Yeah, but also the good thing with the new lineup, they allow you to Fire alarm. No worries. Okay, I'm gonna cut that portion out. Just just the regular irritations, right?